Perceptions podcast. Hello, Undeceivers. We're hard at work preparing Season 8 of Undeceptions, but until that's ready, we've finally packaged up our first live Q&A session. John and I did this back in June after our extremely popular episode on transgender. We had so many questions after we released that episode that we thought we'd make it our first live Q&A just for our Undeceivers. So in case you missed it on Facebook, here it is. A full 40 minutes of John answering some pretty tricky and detailed questions that came out of Episode 69, Transgender. Hello, and welcome to our first uh, Q&A session with John Dixon as part of our growing Undeceptions Plus offering. Um, We're excited to hopefully have a few of our listeners joining us uh, live. And thanks to Director Mark, um, he's behind the scenes and he's monitoring what's going on. Um, I'm producer Kaylee, and I'll be asking John some of the questions that we've collected um, over the last couple of weeks about our recent episode on transgender. Um, And boy, did you have a lot of questions about that. Um, That was episode 69 of Undeceptions, and our guests for that episode if you remember, were Professor Mark Yarhouse and Dana Pham, um, a transgender woman and a liberal arts student in Sydney. Some of the questions we received earlier um, came to us in the shape of um, rather large comments, um, which I totally understand. This is a tricky topic um, in which to be brief, but I've um, necessarily had to shorten them. So if I have to do that with other questions as well, don't be alarmed. Um, We'll get the crux of the question to John. Anyway, all that being said, uh, John, hello. Hello, Producer Kaylee. How are you today? I'm very well. I'm very well. Um, Can I ask, before we get stuck into these questions, um, why did you think this was a topic we should cover on the podcast? Well, I mean, it's in the media. Um, Many of us increasingly will know uh, people firsthand um, who are transgender. And there's a lot of culture warring going on about it. And so it it just seems something that needs to be addressed. And um, I I thought that there was uh, a gap, as it were, in the market that that was trying not to be culture war-like, but did some undeceiving about the facts and figures and psychology and treatments. Hence, uh, our professor of psychology. And also, um, you know, the deeply personal, practical, um, what what is it like um, aspect. Um, And, you know, I was thrilled (laughs) that uh, Dana Pham was able to uh, was able to join us uh, for that as well. So I, I was concerned to be able to convey both. I have one other question before I start posing questions from our um, from our listeners. Um, in the process of preparing the episode, John, did anything shift for you in terms of how you think about this topic? Yes, I think my interview with Dana, meet, meeting her, and you know, just experiencing uh, a sense of what it's really like to experience gender dysphoria and. Um, the the sort of the practical steps that she made and the way she thought about it, uh, I came away with a profound sense that what our culture wars need is um, to know transgender people and to feel friendship with them. Um, and it may not change your convictions about you know 
the reality of male-female, but it, it'll give you, you know, a, a sense of respect and um, generosity and justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I came away from the preparation of the episode really quite, quite changed so that when I came to do the editorials in the episode, um, all, all of that preparation um, influenced. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I should say, I believe that um, Donna is actually um, online listening to us now. So hi, Donna. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Donna. Um, all right, I'm going to um, ask our first question. Um, some of these were um, emailed in to, to us. Um, some of them were on our Undeceptions Plus Facebook page um, already. So we've seen a little bit of discussion about them. Um, but our first one is, um, I'm going to just read it. When God says he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, he isn't saying that he was not in the middle. He's using a metaphor to describe an entire spectrum of existence and asserting that he is every part of that spectrum. Um, how do we know that he didn't intend the same when he said male and female, he created them, that there isn't a spectrum of gender as well? I think the simple answer was already in the question. Um, Alpha and Omega is clearly a metaphor. I mean, God is not the letter Alpha (laughs) or the letter Omega. So already at the literary level, you know you're dealing with a metaphor. Can that really be said for male, female? Um, that is actually the word for things in the world. It's it's not metaphorical. So at the level of speech, uh, these these are not like each other. Um, alpha, omega, um, male, female. But I think the perhaps more substantial uh, way of thinking about it is that um, how do you know God is the bits in between Alpha and Omega? How do you know he is, you know, the beginning and the end? Well, because of all the other bits in Scripture <laughs> that fill in the blanks. I mean, we, we know God isn't just beginning and end, but everything in between. And that that's what the metaphor must mean, because everywhere through Scripture, he's said to be, you know, present in the middle, you know, um, ordering all things in him, all things hold together, Um and so we are actually taught that not even that he is a spectrum, but that he holds the entirety together. Now, when you turn to male, female, is that is it is it the same in scripture? Do you get the reference to male, female? Well, clearly they're not metaphors for one thing, but but could it be that that there's a that the Bible always thought that there was a spectrum in between? And you would only know that if there were plenty of references throughout scripture. For the, you know, to people being in between male and female, um, and I just don't think you find that ever. In fact, you find time and time again, the Bible does think in terms of male and female as real categories, which God intended as good, um, because you also get sons and daughters. <laughs> That, there's another word, uh, husbands and wives, um, descriptions uh, of females doing things and males doing things. Um, you never get the in-between bits. And so I, I just, I, I, I see the attraction of thinking male and female is really just a reference to two poles and that there's actually a spectrum. But it's certainly not how uh, the Bible presents things. It's interesting 
that even transgender itself, uh, transgender thinking or transgender philosophy, um, isn't so much saying there's a spectrum. It's saying that someone born with male genitalia um, who is transgender um, is a woman. So they're not saying in between male and female. They're actually saying um, a woman. So, you know, the very logic of transgender is actually perpetuating um, the binaries that I think are in nature and, um, and in the Bible. That's all very theoretical. <laughs> it doesn't get us close to, you know, thinking about um, the exceptions that, of, of experience that people have. And that's where we wanted to take the episode. Okay. Um, our next question is something that went unmentioned in our transgender episode was recent legislation on this issue. For example, um, in our country in Victoria, uh, legislation has recently passed making it an offence to provide counsel to a gender questioning person that is not positively affirmative. Uh, could you address how the Christian might act in response to legislation that makes it an offence to promote certain biblical truths when gender identity is involved? Hmm. I have so many thoughts around this. <laughs> One is um, things are probably going to get harder <laughs> for for people who maintain a classical view of uh, of male female, and so uh, Christians should just prepare themselves and not panic, and uh, you know just adopt a posture of um, being out of step uh, with culture. Uh, it's a Christian specialty going back uh, to the beginning to be out of step. Um, so um, I, I think we we can expect you know all sorts of legislation to to pressure um, people who hold a classical view. Um, just as a transgender person might point out, legislation to date has pressured them and excluded them. So um, I'm not I'm not panicking about any of this. Um, in the meantime, that particular Victorian legislation, I, I, I've puzzled a lot about it and I've tried to ask expert advice, you know, since last year when it was proposed, as to what it really means. And I am unclear. Um, I, I have read some um, very concerned commentary on the law that says merely mentioning the biblical view uh, will get you into trouble, will transgress the legislation. Um, and yet I've read some commentary that says, mm, not really. Um, it's true that if you urge someone to abandon their sexual identity, gender identity, um, you'll run foul of the legislation you know, because that will be considered conversion therapy or something like that. Um, but I am told by people who know these things um, that in the context of explaining what the Bible teaches um, as what the Bible teaches will not run foul of the legislation. And so if someone um, asks you know, in the context of Victoria, if someone asks you um, your view, I think you could probably just say, um, 
I think what the Bible teaches about this is X, Y, Z. I think you can then offer to pray for them and their struggle, though probably not in the moment. Um, because that may could be interpreted um, by the person you're praying for as urging, as you know, counseling. Um, and so it may look like conversion therapy. And I say, well, okay, so so what? So I will promise to pray for that person when I get home. Um, that they would find joy and clarity and you know, whatever. Um so I, I, th- I think explain what the Bible teaches and you won't run foul of the legislation. Offer to pray, not in their presence, and you won't run foul of the legislation. This is what I'm told. I may be wrong. There may be a legal expert watching. Um, and the first couple of cases that get taken to court will um, we'll, uh, we'll explicate this, of course. Um, but, but that's my take on it so far. I'm... I'm pretty cheerful about it all, um, even though I'm pretty sure Christians need to prepare for this to get very messy. Thanks for that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the next question is, while I appreciate the sensitivity that you and your guests brought to this discussion, this is not me, this is the questioner, um, I am, as a Christian, really bothered by sin. It's one thing to care and love those struggling with sin and indeed walk them through difficult chapters, but it's quite another to affirm it and thereby dismiss it. Are we brave enough to call lifestyles that are in discord with Scripture and God's design sin? If we can muster the fortitude, we can deal with LGBTQ individuals in godly love, but affirming danger lifestyles, destroying working organs and prescribing untested drugs to kids seems like the opposite of love. And that is my love question. Yeah. Back to you. <clears throat> well, that's a, it's a complicated one, of course. Um, I'm a little bit nervous about bundling together L, G, B and T. I'm actually also really nervous about including I, <laughs> um, but anyway, that's a different that's a different uh, matter. Um, but LGB usually refers to people who are um, actively women who are actively in a sexual relationship, lesbian, um, men who are actively in a same-sex relationship, uh, G, gay, and B, of course, is um, someone who will actively have sex with um, both a male and a female. Um, And so the LGB does tend to describe, I'm not going to say lifestyle, um, because I I mean, that word makes it just sound like something they've chosen. And I think the best research, I see no way out of this, the best research has indicated that people's sexual orientation is actually neurophysiologically influenced, if not determined. There's no gay gene uh, that, that, that we've found, no combination of genes that we've found, but there is a neurophysiological dimension to this, that people don't, you know, choose to desire the same sex. Um, but what they do choose is to have sex, Right, <laughs> so so there's even a there's even a subtlety here that we need to we need to puzzle through. So there is no nothing sinful about having desire for someone of the same sex. 
Just as there's nothing sinful about the fact that I desire, you know, at the, at the natural level, women. Um, Buff isn't, the, my darling Buff isn't the only woman I've ever had any desire for, right? I, as a heterosexual male, I desire women, in particular kinds of women, particularly women who look like Buff. Um, but the thing is, um, uh, how I act on that desire is where the sin is. So even at the LGB, there needs to be a slight distinction, okay, between desire, which I think is neutral, and my thought life and actions on those desires. The T, transgender, um, seems a different thing altogether because it isn't about who you have sex with in the first instance. It's it's about um, a, a gender identity. It's about having a sense that your birth sex is in discord with how you genuinely see yourself in your inner identity. That's a, that's a different kind of thing from gay sex or bisex. Um, so I want to I want to separate that out. And so I, I guess I want to respond to that questioner. Um, by saying, I don't think transgender is in any way sinful. Um, it's it's principally uh, an experience of dysphoria about your birth body. And there are all, all sorts of treatments um, that people um, pursue to cope with that. And... Some of them are psychological. So in the episode, we, Mark Yowhouse spoke about um, someone, at, I, I guess you might say, the lighter end of the gender dysphoria experience, who uh, was able, you know, was born a female, but was able to cope by dressing and, and appearing and androgynously, he said. You know, short hair, baggy clothes. And that was okay, Um for her. Um, and then there are others at the other end of the spectrum, and, and, and I guess our lovely Dana would be a good example of this, um, wh whose experience of dysphoria is, is profound and more than counselling is needed, more than hormone therapy is needed, um, sex reassignment or sex confirmation whichever language, I know these are loaded terms, as I explained in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the show, uh, is the only path. And I, I honestly, as I sit here, I don't think there's anything sinful about that. I think these, are, I see these as treatments. Now, just as I said with L, G, and B, um, the, the sense of desire isn't sinful, but the action is, I must admit, I do think that um, that the transgender person is in a really difficult situation because if, let's say, a transgender man, that is a uh, someone who is born biologically female and um, transitions to live as a man, um, I, I think th that person... Um, ought not to have a sexual relationship with a woman. Because 
I do think, as I said in the episode, I do think the factual nature at the ontological level that that transgender person remains a female. And so the transgender man, that is a female who's transitioned to live as a man, shouldn't have sex with a woman, someone of the same sex. And only then would it become sin. But the actual experience of transgender, the treatments of transgender, I, I, I'm saying I don't, I don't see them in the moral category. Gosh, that was a long answer. I, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, these are tricky things and it's really hard to be brief. Um, we have a question from Vanessa um, in, our, in our chat. Uh, since we ourselves are so tainted by sin, how can we be so sure that we're interpreting the Bible's sexual ethics objectively? We're corrupt. Why, why isn't our understanding of gender and sexuality and relationships also possibly corrupt? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, this is a profoundly philosophically epistemological question, right? How do we know anything? Oh, it um, sounds like an Undeceptions episode. <laughs> how, how do I interpret the question that uh, was just put to me by, was it Vanessa, did you say, Vanessa? Yeah. So um, the interesting thing is Vanessa, hello, Vanessa, um, expects me to understand her question expects me to be able to interpret uh, those words. Uh, and I'm pretty confident I understood her words too. <laughs> uh, to repeat back to you, I think she's saying, given we're so fallen, how do we know that our interpretation of the scripture is, uh, is correct? Uh, I'm pretty sure that's what she asked. She expects me to understand it. I do understand it. Now, I think at the, at the simplest level, um, the words of scripture are clear about sex. And um, I realize that there are efforts to reinterpret um, those texts in a way that sort of, um, I don't know, maybe um, relativizes them um, because of cultural, historical insights um, and, and says, oh, we don't need to listen to those texts anymore because our culture is different. That's one interpretive strategy. There are others who say, ah, oh, no, no, that say the, the, the criticisms of same-sex relationships in the Bible are only ever to do with idol worship or abusive relationships, for example. Um, and therefore, it doesn't refer to a loving same-sex relationship. I mean, I see that as you know, it's an interpretive strategy. The problem is there are facts that get in the way. One is the language never connotes those things never connotes idol worship as related to same-sex activity. Never connotes abusive relationships. The language that's used is just very, very forward, very, very straightforward. Men bedding men is the Greek translation of the of the term. Um, it, it it doesn't refer to pederasty, which has different words in Greek. Um, so I think people who, who adopt this are really straining to find a way to make the text say um, what, what they want in this current cultural climate where the pressure is very much to not think what the Bible thinks. And the other thing I'd put forward is, as a, just a historical observation, isn't it interesting that the Bible has always, until five minutes ago, been interpreted this way? I mean, there has been no dispute amongst uh, Christian theologians for 2,000 years about what the meaning of these texts are. 
Um, even though plenty of cultures they went into uh, were approving of same-sex relations, the Bible just continues um, to have its view, and theologians have um, um, ha- maintained, you know, their 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 interpretation. So I want to throw this back to Vanessa. I don't know who Vanessa is, um, but it's a very thoughtful question. I want to throw this back. Um, it's more likely, in my view, that our hope that we've misinterpreted scripture is influenced by the blip of our modern culture than it is that that we've misinterpreted scripture. I hope that um, goes some way in answering your question, Vanessa. Uh, this one is again from our um, from our comments from Jack. Hi, Jack. Um, I'm just going to take the the last bit. He's saying his understanding is that the issues, concerns, implications for transgender people are quite different um, to those issues, concerns, and implications for LGB people. Um, uh, his question was: Was this raised in in our discussions or your discussions with um, with Mark Yarhouse in particular? Um, and is there a sense that the transgender community is disadvantaged in achieving some sort of societal understanding uh, by being so connected and possibly overshadowed by LGB community issues? Yeah, well, it was a part of our discussion with Mark Yarhouse, especially because I, I had already read his book and I knew in his book. He makes perfectly clear we we mustn't mix this up with the notion of same-sex relationships. That the LGB, the bundling of T with LGB, ha- has muddled the the discussion. So what we did, the way the way this whole thing influenced our approach to this episode, was we decided to not connect it with LGB. I can't remember if we editorialized about that, Kaylee. You probably remember the episode better than I do, but I but I. I think we we might have. Yeah, I think, edit- we, I think we did. Um, yeah, a short, a short. Yeah, but um, Mark's whole approach on this we we adopted. So we went straight for you know, not not setting it in the context of same sex relationships, but just this is this is a phenomenon in our world. People are genuinely experiencing this. Um, there are treatments. They're not very successful. Uh, you know, like psychological treatments aren't very successful. There are all sorts of other treatments, hormone that, um, and sex reassignment. We need to we need to talk about those. Um, so we just we just carved it out as a completely separate issue. And yes, um, maybe maybe it is the case that being bundled in with LGB has meant that that T hasn't been able to have its um, its say. Um, that may be changing because. Obviously, everyone's now talking about transgender. And it's almost like now that LGB is faded into the background, I mean, I don't mean to say you know, gays and lesbians and bisexual people have faded into the background. I don't mean that. I mean, as a controversy, you know, because LGB has won the culture war, uh, won the legislative war. Um, and so, And so, in a sense, it's less hot. Um, that has actually allowed transgender voices to rise to the surface and and there is a big culture war around it um and we wanted to you know appear in in that conversation with some facts and with some heartfelt um story and and insight um yeah i hope that comes some way to answering jack mm. 
this was a question that was sent in uh, prior to our um, live. Uh, one thing that wasn't addressed in our episode was the effect these gender issues have on other people. I understand um, this listener's son's gender dysphoria has been so desperately difficult for him, but it affects each member of the family too. Mm. Um, this listener said it was uh, the episode was really helpful in providing some practical ways to love and accept his son. Um, he's never stopped loving him anyway, but the son tends to equate love and acceptance with agreement. Um, and while this listener doesn't condone how his son lives, he desperately loves his son all the same. Um, I've put this question into a hypothetical for you, John. Uh, hypothetically, how do you think you would respond if one of your children was having these types of issues? And how might we be able Gosh. to help other parents um, do this well? Well, I think that that listener know, knows better than I. Uh, I can only hypothesise. Um, um, how would I respond? Um, I, I think I have to be honest and say I, I would I would find it distressing. Um, at two levels, it will it would mess with my head. You know, because because I do I do believe in the goodness of the binary of male and female, um, and I would feel distressed for the distress that my child um, was going through. Um, in terms of how I, I would respond at the practical level, I, I guess all, all I all I can really say is that I would have the clearest talk I could possibly have in the safest language I could muster with my child about my view that that gender is real, gender is good. And once there was a clarity about that, a, a genuine, uh, conveying a, a genuine love and respect and that my care for my child is unconditional and then I would just get on with the business of helping them as best they can. I'm sure I would wish for them to experience um, counselling that assists. I'm sure I would wish for them to find soft strategies, um, like, like the example Mark Yarhouse mentions in our episode. Um, but if none of that is helping and they're, they're tortured, I think I would have to support them in further therapies, um, and no matter what they decided, I would I'd walk with them through it, um, and I I would have a prayer life, <laughs> uh, a daily prayer life. I mean, I do have a daily prayer life for my kids anyway, but I think it would be heartfelt. And if I'm honest, I I, I probably wouldn't let my son or daughter know the intensity and feelings of my prayers because I wouldn't want to add to their distress. They're my few bumbling thoughts, but they feel inadequate given that this listener has been walking through it and probably knows all the ways that what I just said is um, uh, wrong. Um, on a um, kind of continuing with this practical advice vein, uh, James in our comments has asked what practical advice you might be able to give to pastors who have trans people joining their congregations um, and also for um, transgender people who might be looking to somehow participate in ministry. 
Yeah, well, this is an increasingly uh, common thing um, at, at my own church. Yeah, so... Um, I think every pastor needs to uh, needs to get their head around this. Um, and my simple view is it's really important to do two things. I think it's really important for pastors to teach the goodness of the categories of male or female, that these are creation categories. We believe in the body. We believe in physicality. We believe in creation. And I would, I would go so far as to say um, there will be a teaching component um, that will be public and there will be a teaching component that will be um, personal. So I do think pastors should very quickly get alongside transgender people and explain this, what I'm calling the biblical view, that male and female are real categories and they are good. Um, However, <laughs> or not even however, simultaneously, the pastor needs to convey both publicly and privately to transgender people in the church and operationally in terms of how we conduct Bible studies and rules around bathrooms and so on, make perfectly clear that transgender people are full members of our of our family, of our church family, and and that will mean if there are, you know, um, women's Bible studies that a transgender woman should freely be invited uh, to the transgender, uh, to the to the women's Bible study, uh, according to her tra gender identity, um, which isn't to acquiesce in the teaching <laughs> that male and female are good creational realities. But it is to be kind and to be part of the therapeutic um, culture in which transgender people are going to feel, therapeutic probably is a terrible word, um, just a, a safe, safe environment for, for transgender people in the church. So I, ho I hope I'm conveying that um, with, with due... Um, nuance because <laughs> um, <clears throat> I'm not saying we acquiesce on the theology and on the ontology um, and at the same time I'm not saying we should allow that ontology and theology to um, be experienced as harsh uh, to the transgender person it should feel soft um, I've loved always loved Simon Smart the CEO of um, the Center for Public Christianity he has this image of what it should be like to bump into the church. And he says it's like a giant high jump mat. You know those you know those huge mats that are, you know, about three feet mm -hmm. big. Yeah, yeah. And right. And you and you, and the high jumper, you know, leaps up two meters high and falls into it and it just envelops them and it's gorgeous like to watch. It's like a yeah. hug. But the thing is, when you try and move one of those things. They are so heavy. You you need like eight people to move one. They're not they're not like little foamy things. It's not like moving your you know little mattress around. They are, they are difficult. So they are, they are simultaneously solid and soft, you know, heavy and comforting. Um, and that's Simon Smart's um, 
image of what it should be like for anyone to bump into the church. Um, it's embracing, it's soft, it feels safe. It's just that you can't move it <laughs> on its convictions. It's just not going anywhere. It's had this view from the beginning. It's it's not changing its view. But that doesn't mean we can't wrap our arms of love around you. I feel like that's a... Um, I've never heard that um, metaphor before and I really like it. And I feel like that I should claim it as my own, to... shouldn't I? Yeah, you should. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Simon. Um, uh, I feel like that's probably a good place to... Um, to finish up, I think um, I'm sorry uh, if we didn't get to your question, although um, some questions I feel like John really kind of uh, nailed it in his answer to others. So maybe um, go back and have a listen. But thank you so much for joining us, John. Thank you for your time. Um, I'm sure I'll speak to you in the next five minutes. Um, <laughs> but um, for that, uh, see you So later. I can go now? Yeah, you can go now and everyone okay. else can too. God you bless. are released. See ya. Thank you. Thank you, pluses. <laughs> oh, no, undeceivers. Undeceivers. <laughs>